Hello and welcome to season two. Carrie, I'm borrowing your wording from your Tell Me This podcast of, you know, <laughs> you guys are in season two. So I feel like new year, new season for, for Learning Educators podcast. Although I don't quite think we're the, we've hit the dirty dozen of season two. I think we're still in like episode six or seven. So we're, we're following close behind you guys. But this is Kristen Barber with NILD. And I've got with me some great friends and colleagues, Paula Clark, Carrie Bukowski, and Brianne Roos. And hopefully this isn't the first time you've joined us for this podcast, but if it is, welcome. We're glad that you're here. If you are one of our followers, happy 2021. We are, um, as we've had in some other discussions, maybe cautiously optimistic that 2021 is going to be a much better year. But as we think about our conversation today, ladies, We've been having a lot of discussion about ideas around belonging and learning educators. And, you know, Carrie, you brought up the word cross-pollinate. I'm thinking of sort of this intersection where these sort of two roads are diverging. So pause with me a minute as I allow us to take a trip down memory lane. How many of us remember Robert Frost's poem, Two Roads Diverged, and so are the road not taken? So I want to just take a minute and read that poem to us as we sort of set the stage for today's. And if you're if you're listening, you can't hear the deep breath, but I'm watching my colleagues and I'm seeing all of us sort of take a deep breath and sink into this moment of reflection and thinking well together. So Robert Frost said, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had borne them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And as I think about this work that we're doing as learning educators on this podcast, just living life, exploring our ideas, trying to apply these ideas of being a learning educator, developing a sense of belonging, I think we're traveling down a path that really is diverging from the status quo of what's happening in education. But I hope that when we look back, we'll say this has made all the difference in our lives personally and professionally as career-long educators, as the various roles that we hold in our lives as daughters and parents and, and mothers and, and aunties, uncles, whatever it is, how do we create this lifelong sense of learning as well as including belonging across all sectors of students that we engage with? And so as we enter into 2021, what we thought we would bring to this podcast are just some questions and the opportunity to be raw and reflective and just share our thoughts. And so we, we've got a couple questions, but as usual, we'll probably diverge down some other paths and have some great conversations as we do. 
But I'm looking forward to just spending time dialoguing with you. And so maybe this first question to think about, considering the pandemic, considering all of the political, racial, educational challenges that our students are facing in K-12 and in a higher ed setting, how do we help our students achieve the standards? Because we know we have to have them, those rigorous high expectations for all learners, but also embrace a learning mindset that we have in our prior podcast said are just essential. That learning mindset is essential to being a learning educator. So I, I'm going to let whoever would like to launch in be take the take the reins here with this first one. Sounded like Wrigley wanted to jump in there. I know <laughs> that four-legged friend. He'd like to go down the path with us too. I think. Hey, that's okay. Dogs are allowed for sure. That's right. So. Well, I love the opening. I was a little nervous you were going to ask us to give our opinion of the poem or something. <laughs> I felt like I was sitting in an English class, panicked for a moment. So I was really happy to see you like move to the questions that I had semi-prepared. Yes. <laughs> so speaking of not being a learning educator at that moment, um, I'm happy to start. Um, okay. You know, when I thought about this question, how do we help students achieve the standards and embrace the learning mindset? I struggled a little bit, and I know we've talked about this, Kristen, well, all of us really together have talked about it, because I, I agree, you know, we need standards, right? I mean, for, for everything we do, it's, it's obvious in subjects like math and sort of, you know, the work that you do, um, Brianne, with speech pathology and anatomy, and there, there are things that are just either right or you're wrong, right? Like, I get that. I think the thing that I'm struggling with, so I'll take the first part of the question and maybe somebody can jump on and then finish it up, is I want to think about standards in a different way. I'm not saying we don't need standards. I'm going to propose that what we need to do is treat standards the way in which we approach, I mean, what we call andragogy, like adult learners, right? Um, this idea of relevance and problem-oriented and applicable, relevant. And what I mean by that is, is there a way to craft the standard so that it contextually fits into the student's situation? So that it, it is the universal standard, but we present it in a way that it's relevant to that student. Um, Chris and I was reminded of the that quadrant that we used the other night in our professional learning. It says, it talks about diversity, equity, inclusivity, and belonging. And I was thinking, why can't that also be a placard for standards? Why can't standards be diverse? Like you can have a standard, but it might look and feel a little different. You can make them equitable. You can make them inclusive, which will result in a sense of belonging. That that student, as they go to achieve that standard, see themselves and their environment in the work they're doing. And I would suggest that if we could figure that out, we could increase agency, satisfaction, motivation, retention, all those good outcomes that we, we see in traditional. So I'm gonna be quiet there, but that's, that's sort of what I've been thinking about. Carrie, what you just brought up with that quadrant, as I was thinking about this question, reminds me of differentiated instruction. That's what we do in differentiated instruction. Why can we not apply that to assessments as well, where we're looking at the content, 
the process of students demonstrating their knowledge, the product of what we, how we want them to demonstrate that knowledge, and then what is that learning environment for the assessment? What does the actual assessment look like? Um, you know, could we shift our mindset that assessment doesn't just have to be a measurement tool for what has been learned, but, or a measure of what has been learned, but also a learning process in and of itself, that it's this dynamic tool that says, aha, here are some gaps in my knowledge, or here's an area where I'm particularly adept. How can I build on that? So to me, the idea is of differentiating that assessment, as well as looking at it as a learning tool, not just a measurement tool, I think may help us to incorporate a learning mindset. It's interesting and listening to both of you talk in, in, and just think about this different form of an assessment. I read an article from Educational Leadership by Rick Stiggins and he talks about assessment for learning rather than assessment of learning. And it sounds exactly what both of you are describing. Um, and really in the article, he gives this idea of an experience for the learner. So when you focus on assessment of learning, um, students that do well with that, they're hopeful, you know, they have confidence, they feel like they're doing fine. Um, but on the other hand, when you have a student that struggles with those assessments, it just perpetuates hopelessness, the feeling that they can't succeed, nothing they do is going to change. Um, so, you know, it's, it's that whole purpose of assessment and, and why not treat it as assessment for learning. And, and a lot of the research in, in mathematics um, in particular that I've been reading lately has been about um, descriptive feedback. And I think that descriptive feedback can be one way that when we do give assessments, um, that can be an assessment for learning, a true assessment for learning because we're giving students more than just you got it right or you got it wrong, but it's the scaffolding. It's, you know, and, and I remember when I was, um, taking the courses to instruct um, my first time at Johns Hopkins this, this past fall. And there was a video, I think Carrie, you were a big part of it on feedback. And it's that same premise of how do we give feedback? Mm -hmm. And it's the feedback we give to students that is gonna create that mindset that they are learners and it's not a be all end all assessment where you know it's the end of the road for you, right? So it's, it's a form of scaffolding and it's a form of instruction. And I think those are the words you used, Carrie, in that, in that webinar. So I, I love listening to this. And as you were talking, of course, this is not the answer I had prepared, but as you were talking, Carrie, I pulled up an article that um, you and I wrote about um, Finnish education and, and connecting back to Finland. And because as you all were talking, I was just coming back to this idea of process versus product, which is something that we've talked about a lot. And what is it that we're assessing? Is it the end? Is it the exam? Is it the paper? Is it th that thing? Or is it really the process? And uh, when we had the opportunity to look a little bit into Finnish education, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but I think it's Lada Maki. Um, that author talked about how Finnish educators value the way that students view school and school-related tasks while also cultivating outcomes. So they really look at, kind of Paula, to your point, how is this going for you? that's just as important as how they're doing on the math test. It's how are you personally feeling about your learning? And then also, how, how are you doing on your math test kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I really love that explicit focus on process 
um, and the, the whole student. And that, I mean, that circles back, Carrie, to what you had started us off with, is meeting each student where they are, right? And having yeah. diverse standards to meet our diverse students. Yeah, and if we, I mean, if we think about this from a, if we could geek out for a moment from like a, a researchy methodolo methodological sort of thought, right? What I was thinking is, we're, we, when we say standards, immediately we say assessment, but I'd like to go on record as saying those are different, right? You set that you establish the standard, and I would argue that that standard has to feel inclusive and equitable as well. And then you align, once you've agreed on that standard, or, or I say standard, but it's almost like this blurry thing, right? It's not just a black or white. You're not, you're not on it or not. It's sort of like in the space of a standard. And once you agree on what that space looks like for like a third grader or a 10th grader or an adult edu edu um, student, then you start to think about assessment, right? Like, is it formative assessment? Is it summative assessment? And Paula, I loved what you said as you were talking, it made me realize when we speak about assessment, I think we don't always mean to, but it feels very unilateral, right? We assess on, right? Like as you were saying, um, Brianne, we, were assess we are assessing on somebody, right? And I think, Paula, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what I kept hearing in my brain as you were talking was almost thinking about assessment as a reciprocity, mm -hmm. right? It's mm -hmm. a it's an interconnectedness, a reciprocal, a relationship that you're building. And so why does there have to be anything wrong with a student gradually achieving a standard, right? Through a back and forth, an iterative process, a, recipro a reciprocity of assessment mm -hmm. where, I mean, I, I feel like, and, and, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, Paula, because you're really on the front lines in K-12. I feel like when I talk to my kids' teachers, some of them are naturally doing that. They'll say to me, you know, I'm like, but the standard in Massachusetts says he should be doing this. And they'll say, yeah, but he's doing these things in class and we can see it. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the good teachers who feel confident and efficacious are sort of doing that. And I wish that thing that they do, we could normalize mm -hmm. <laughs> so that more teachers would do that instead of freaking out when like they're not hitting standard one dash a of the Massachusetts code. Right. Um, I don't know. Do you see that in your work, Paula? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think sometimes the difference and I'm no expert at it, you know, myself, but I think that the, the difference is when a teacher fully knows what that standard is, and we've spent a lot of time in our district kind of scaffolding the standards, what's behind it, uncovering it, like digging into that standard deeper so that you know that on some level they're reaching it and they're reaching those milestones. Well, you know, when you have teachers that truly embrace that like standards-based learning or really standards-based assessments and they know their standards and they know those sub-skills, um, it's easy for them to do that, right? Yeah. So it's easy for them to see those. Um, when you're just trying to read it as is and reaching that particular benchmark or goal, um, it's easy to say, you know, oh, they didn't reach that goal, but what did they miss? You know, so it, or what did they get? So again, it's focusing on those small components that build that standard. Um, so really, again, to your point, it's not linear at all. It's like the standard is, is all encompassing. They all work together. It's more of a network. So yeah. you have to look at those in pieces to see you know, how they fit together and what parts that they are able to do. Yeah, I guess I wonder, and I'm going to throw a question out to the three of you, because I feel like in your work, it comes up more than it comes up for me. Um, and I know this is, you know, this is not a popular opinion. I'm not a fan of standardized tests for lots of reasons. And there's research that bears out 
all the reasons why we could make a case against standardized tests. And yet, as we said in the beginning, I understand that there are responses that are black and white, right? I think this is true for NILD work. I think this is true for Brianne when you teach anatomy. I think this is true, Paula, when you teach math. But the question I have for these brilliant women on this podcast with me is, could we devise some sort of metric that still gets that information, that collects that data, but doesn't have to be wrought with bias and stress and anxiety that is <laughs> elicited by these standardized tests? I don't know. That's a big question, and I know that's not going to change overnight, but I'm just curious, like, if we could just, I don't know, if you, if you could just play along for a second, maybe. Well, Carrie, I'm having such an interesting experience planning my anatomy course for this semester because it's hybrid and, you know, assessment is tricky. I think we had talked about this a little bit in the fall. So, you know, if you ask, what does assessment look like? My answer is open book is what it looks like because we really have no control. They can sign an honor code or whatever. So I'm not having any closed book assessments in anatomy, which is almost like, well, how are you going to do it? So what we're going to do is we're going to ask them to use the information rather than give it mm -hmm. back to me, um, which is, of course, what we should have been doing, I guess, all along. It's just not sort of the traditional approach to this type of subject matter, which, like you said, is, is really pretty objective most of the time. So we're doing lab types of activities all online, not with like cadavers, not, not anything that cool, but with a <laughs> kind of a robust software program that we have where the students have to find and label and identify and move things around and that sort of thing. But it's, I hope, less stressful because they're not having to memorize it and give it back to me. They have the information at their fingertips and their challenge is then going to be to use it and to demonstrate connection across units and across systems, you know, literal anatomical systems. I'm hoping that myself and, and the other faculty member who are teaching this, that we learn a lot from this experiment. Mm -hmm. like experiment. Um, we're doing formative quizzing, also, um, everything open book and just trying to take a really different approach to the course. And cool. we'll see. <laughs> we'll check back yeah. in May and see how it went. I'm glad you don't have body parts in your refrigerator. For <laughs> Let's just put in that jars. out there. <laughs> like, yeah, Deidre goes that. to cook and grabs the wrong jar. <laughs> New dinner. Mm. And just, just listening to, to Paula and Brienne, your response to Carrie's question makes me think about traditional versus non-traditional assessment. I mean, currently our traditional assessments are pretty static. You get it, you respond in whatever format you're required to respond. But what would happen if they were dynamic? What would happen, what would happen if they were adaptable and or you're working collaboratively with somebody else? I mean, think about what we do in our, our jobs and our careers. We work with other people to problem solve, to critically think, to be creative. What would happen if we really got assessments in that zone of proximal development that what the student was able to accomplish with a more capable peer or that, that peer mentoring is really a better predictor of their propensity for learning than sort of this static snapshot. And then the other, the other thought that I have in terms of what could assessments look like or how could we move it to maybe non-traditional or away from the traditional is thinking about the type of feedback that we give. You know, mm -hmm. usually it's right or wrong, or here's what you missed. What if we use wise critical feedback, which is what Jaeger talks about, where to carry your point, building that relationship with students, even in assessment, mm -hmm. we say, 
here's, here's what was missed, here's what you need to look for, and OPS, by the way, I believe that you can achieve this. I know that you're a good student, we've got the structures in place to help you be successful, and I'm giving you this feedback because I believe it's going to change the way you think. And so building that rapport with the student in that wise, it's not just critical feedback, but it's wise critical feedback because it, in, it includes that effective component. I'd love to see assessments, the feedback that comes with assessment look different, such as that. Yeah, I think that's great. I love, I don't think we're there yet, but I do think there are people out there sort of acknowledging that assessment is some combination of behavior, cognition, and emotion. Right. And I feel like Brianne and I just did a podcast with um, Lisa Cerise today. She's a second year doctoral student doing work on sort of, well, not sort of, but the mental and physical, you know, in terms of stress, like looking at neurologically. And I'm just thinking about the amount of stress that those, you know, standardized tests create. And then that, of course, ha wreaks havoc on your cognitive load. I feel like our logic is flawed and I can only speak to my own experience, but making me take a standardized test is not going to make me learn calculus more deeply. It just stresses me out. And I would argue that I didn't learn calculus until I finally had a professor at a community college who applied it to something. Like, yes. you could make me take a hundred tests. I was not going to learn how to do you know, all of the stuff I had to do in calculus. I just was not going to learn how to do derivatives and I wasn't going to remember those rules. But until I, he finally said, it's this, I was like, of course, right? So I just think if we can acknowledge the amount of emotion that comes into assessment and how that can really block a student of any age um, and then they can't perform, right? So how good is the assessment? And then that feeling, right? Like Paula was saying, so Carrie, you're taking test after test and what, you know, you just feel like terrible. Like I cannot do this. I you're can't, right. I still can't do this. I could never That's do awful. this. And so I will never be able to do it. It's just so self-perpetuating and you can't climb out of that to learn something new, something hard <laughs> like calculus. Yeah. Um, so I just, you know, your heart just sort of breaks for our own kids who are going through this. Yeah. And then, you know, the, it sticks the with you teach. and it sticks it with really you. Does. Like, I mean, I took it calculus really as a 12th grader and I can remember sitting in class crying, getting the the, the test back because I didn't do well. And that sat with me for years. Um, and I know that happens to a lot of people. I mean, our doc students, to, our doc students at Hopkins tell me all the time, you know, I had this professor who said this about my writing and haven't been able to get past it. I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I think we, you know, I think, Kristen, it goes back to your thing about feedback. I, I think we often discount the significance that feedback has, um, particularly the negative. I think we forget how, how much our students care about what we have to say about them. And I think we should remember that. So if well, we're going down this road that's less traveled, call it swimming upstream, call it the less traveled road, how can we present a pervasive or persuasive case as well as pervasive? Pervasive would be okay too. <laughs> right? for, for the return on investment that this type of approach, as we think about assessments, might yield for classrooms, for school districts, for, for organizations, um, really for our culture, for the next generation that, that our institutions are preparing and then what, what can we use to help us prove our case um, to, to bring converts over to this, hey, travel this road with us, go down this path. It's less traveled, but boy, the return on investment is significant. 
I think we have to look to the students. I think that's where we have to look to be convincing to our colleagues and our peers. Um, you know, Brian and I talked about in a podcast the other day how often we use surveys in the class. And, you know, that really, in terms of data, right, the qualitative data that that provides in the students' voices and, and just hearing their struggles. Um, and when you give them a chance to talk and you give them open-ended questions and you ask them about those experiences, um, I shared an example of where I gave us, the students a survey about what they would like to learn, like if they could create a class in school. And the answers that I got, they were all, you know, practical applications of something. So in terms of what we we're just speaking of, they, they want to learn how to apply the knowledge that they're learning in high school. Um, and they want classes that allow them to do that. Um, so that goes right along with the assessment, but it's, it's the voices of the students. When, when you listen to the students that struggle or are defeated, you know, we all know students that we have in our families, you know, it, it could be a relative, it could be a friend's child that, that have struggled and just the defeat on their face and the look on their face and their attitude towards school. Um, but when you give students that, that chance to, you know, edit their paper, a chance to correct mistakes, and that they see that they can do it and they have those positive experiences. I think the student voice can give us the qualitative data that we need to, to be convincing. Yeah, I love that, Paula. I think um, I had two thoughts when, when Chris and we were looking at these questions, and one of them came, and I think it's related to what you were saying, Paula. I, did, I was part of a, a panel at Hopkins to just talk about online learning and how to build community and sort of, you know, what that looks like. And to my surprise, there were like, I don't know, there were like 200 people in this, wow. this panel, which was, was amazing. Were those professors and students? Yes, professors. It was an internal Hopkins thing and it was professors from all over the university, which was amazing. And it was great. I mean, I, I learned a lot from, I mean, there's some people doing some really amazing things around, around the campus. So it's great to hear from them. And they sort of asked us for our last thoughts as they were closing up. And I said, because um, we were talking about, you know, at Hopkins, well, any place, but at Hopkins in particular, they worry about rigor, the rigorousness, the rigorousness, right? Feedback and rigor. And I finally said, you can have kindness and rigor. It can be an and in both. And the hilarious thing is, is that somebody from the session tweeted that out. <laughs> I was like, woohoo! So I guess to Paula's point, you know, listening to the students and learning from the students, I think one of the ROIs there is we're all human beings trying to make our way through this life. Like, I think there is ROI in being kind to each other. And I'm sorry, but damn it, we could use some more kindness in this world right now. Um, you know, coming off of this capital thing and this president, I'm not going to get political, but just like being kind to each other for me is an ROI. I think the other thing, and then I'll be quiet, I think the other thing I was thinking about in terms of return on investment is also related to the capital riots and the pandemic and even 9-11. When I've read articles reflecting on those incidents, people often say that our inability to manage those well was a failure of our imagination. And so I think we are training and teaching students now for challenges and innovations that we cannot possibly imagine. And what better time to be talking about reflection and equity and differentiating learning and problem solving and adaptability if the pandemic has taught us nothing but that we have to be able to pivot 
we have to be able to pivot. We have to be willing to pivot and not be so scared that we're going to make a mistake, right? We need to own it. I mean, Paula, you always talk about a beginner mindset. Imagine if this had been in our culture. I'm sorry, I'm getting on a soapbox, but it gets me excited. Imagine back in March, if in our culture, we were already thinking about a beginner's mindset and learner educators, and we told our K-12 teachers that they had to pivot. Imagine what that might have looked like. Could have been a little bit different. I think our teachers did an excellent job on record of saying that, but I think the stress and anxiety and the innovation would have, you know, that that would have gone down and the innovation would have gone up, but those are my thoughts. I think I mean, I just love listening to this. And I guess I come back to what is our ultimate goal in education? Our goal, I think, is to create lifelong learners, isn't it? To create people who, who understand learning and who value learning and who love to learn. And I was writing a letter of recommendation for a student who wants to do a year of service postgraduate. And um, she had written up some things for, you know, about herself that she thought I might want to include. And she said, I'm a lifelong learner. And then she went on to talk about how she is a leader in this outdoor adventure experience club at Loyola. And at first I'm like, how is this connected? I mean, that was my instinct, like lifelong learner, I'm thinking academics. And she was so articulate. She said, I, I was always afraid of those sorts of things. Like I'd never white water rafted before, but I decided to try it. And I decided to try it in the capacity of a leader so that I'd be learning like along with other people and I'd have to be showing other people how to do it. And to go back to my really sort of love of appreciative learning, I thought, good for you, right? Like you have the skills to learn something hard and something new and to bring other people with you. And you're demonstrating this in the woods. She is a lifelong learner and she's a fantastic student. And she's a student who has that sort of sense of calm about her, even when things are really hard in the classroom. And I learned a lot, even just thinking about her and what it means to be a lifelong learner. It means you are genuinely curious and you're okay with taking a risk and okay with trying something new. And you know, you guys had mentioned what Paula likes to talk about, the beginner's mindset. She just demonstrated it beautifully in a context that's not academic. And I think that that's, we can all learn from that. And that's a huge ROI. You know, Brianne, it, it just reminded me, there, there was some research done recently out of the United Kingdom. I don't remember the name of the article, but they talked about how a lot of universities right now are offering free online classes, like continuing ed classes. And, you know, they were talking about the populations of adults that enrolled, and it was your typical high achiever, high performer. Those were the ones that were enrolling in these courses, and it wasn't it wasn't, you know, the people that they intended to capture, which was any audience at all. And it was, you know, community or continuing ed courses ranging from cooking to learning a language to playing an instrument. It wasn't just, um, you know, your traditional courses. And they identified the barrier with this group as they did not feel the learning was relevant to them. They didn't feel that they were learners. They didn't feel that they connected to the learning environment. So, so somehow we have to break down that barrier like your student did and, and, realize, and have people realize that learning is for everyone and, and it's, in that, it's in that approach for sure. And, and Paula, where, where you've just built and taken us to building on what Carrie and Brienne said, it's we've got to, for me, I think we have to address the hearts and the minds. Going back to both with our students and ourselves as educators, why did we get into teaching in the first place? 
you know, students don't necessarily have a choice of coming to school, but why are they maybe ready or not ready to be a member in that learning community? And what are those barriers? So if we take this holistic approach to teaching where we're considering hearts, minds, beliefs, experiences, and remembering that we're feeling beings who think, as um, Imordino Yang talks about, versus thinking beings who feel, that, that really is directing our behaviors and, and our responses. And so just building, you know, is a Parker Palmer that talks about the courage to teach. If we've ever needed to be courageous, this is the time as educators to be courageous, but that means getting to the heart of the matter. And just acknowledging that, I know for our educational therapists, many of them have a heart um, before their head of why they're getting into this career because they don't really know what does it mean to be an educational therapist. They just have a heart for students who learn differently and wanting to be inclusive and bringing equitable education to all types of learners. And so when the heart is there, the mind um, can follow naturally because that intrinsic motivation is, is very high for our educational therapists to help all types of learners. Yeah, I love that heart. I love that hearts and mind. I think I think we need to focus way more on the heart and less on the mind these days. Because I completely agree with you, Brianne. This idea of lifelong learner. I, when I first started teaching, I worked at a community college, and that was just a part of their mission and their motto. Because you know, community colleges are there to serve the community, all ages, right? I think that the tricky thing with lifelong learners, I was actually reading um, an article the other day. I can't remember where it was now in Politico or the Atlantic. And I think your student is sort of the, the like ideal lifelong learner. I think when we use that term lifelong learner, we often focus on the ability to take a class at any age, the sort of logistics of being able to sign up for a class or the logistics that something's offered for seniors in the community or 14 year olds or, and I guess what I feel like we, always we continue to miss in doctoral education and lifelong learning is everything that's pent up in doing that act right like the identity development the like clash of your expert expertise as something and then you walk into this piano lesson and you're a novice like we don't address how that feels like you could you could be an admitted lifelong learner and love it and i i am definitely a lifelong learner but until i went to the ed d every time i signed up for my next masters after susan would roll her eyes at me i would like have all the same angst because i am such a perfectionist and i think the roi in our work is helping people dismantle that angst so that they can go full board and be like learners and be okay with being novices. I don't know. I just, I feel like we always, we're great at the cognitive knowledge side, but we're terrible at acknowledging the heart side, Kristen. And I love how you said that, the heart side, because that's really what it is. The identity development that happens every time you re-enter some learning uh, context. And so I think one really tangible thing that we can do is take that mindset and apply an appreciative inquiry approach to that. So when you have a student who's really struggling with math, take the math off the table. And if you can have a conversation and say, you know, this pandemic has been so hard. What is something really hard that you've done? Tell me about it, right? And kind of have a conversation about something that was really hard. And then I think the expertise comes in with you identifying the skills that that student needed to endure whatever that was. 
you demonstrated so much perseverance and X, Y, Z. And I'm going to tell you something, those skills, it's the same thing. That's what you need for this. You have this, you know how to do this. There is so much to, I think, conversations like that, but that's not in our script, right? And that's not in our norm. But when we can connect with students in that way and really contextualize the learning and connect it to their daily lives and their experiences and even pre-pandemic. I mean, I've had plenty of conversations like that with students that don't have to be that intense. It's not about, you know, the pandemic. It's just tell me something that happened over the summer that was kind of tricky or that you didn't anticipate. Was there ever anything surprising? You know, I don't know. Any number of sentence starters can initiate those conversations. And I think it really helps students to think of themselves not as bad test takers, but as people who actually do have a skill set that they can apply to a situation that felt pretty sort of hopeless. You know, um, Brianne, just thinking about that, what resonates with me is, is that's the why of this work. You know, if, if, we're, if we're caring about building lifelong learners, it's, it's helping to enhance how they're thinking. And, and it's not so much content specific, but it's that application to just daily living life and doing life and being successful um, in, in the environment and, and the context in which that individual is there. So, so why, do, why do we, what's the why of this work that we're doing? These four learning educators, why do we care about being a learning educator? Why does it matter this idea of belonging and, and diversity, equity and inclusion? Um, what, what is it that's intrinsically motivating us for the why of this work and how can we communicate that with others? And, and Brianne, I think your, your case example was just on point with that appreciative inquiry of, boy, this was hard, but look at what you have and here's how you can apply it in this situation. I mean, I think, you know, it goes back to those four quadrants, the diversity, equity, inclusion, inclusion and belonging. I mean, if, if we're going to authentically live our lives as educators and colleagues and whatever you, however you identify as, as folks who try to cultivate belonging and connection, the why seems obvious to me, right? Like if we really believe that every human being has value and has a contribution to make in the spaces they enter, then of course... <laughs> we're going to do this work in this way, of course. Um, and I bet each of us has a story of we remember being a learner and being told that don't even bother, you can't do that, or you did that and look how badly you did. And no one needs to hear that. And I'm not going to be that educator and colleague and individual that does that. And I think, yeah, I mean, I just, to me, it goes, I mean, I mean, I know there's, there's a brain side and a cognitive side of this that matters immensely. But to me, and I've always said this, and I don't think it's always popular in the university setting, I think heart matters way more. I really think at the end of the day, I don't think if you, if you can't connect with the person whom you're trying to support, you're not going to teach them in the way that you, you, you could or should. I just, I just believe that in my bones. I believe that in my bones. So. Carrie, you're such a great storyteller. When, when you were talking, I thought about this story. So I was working with a grade four student, we'll just call his name Stephen. He was really struggling with spelling, 
um, you know, has a diagnosis of dyslexia, just really vulnerable in how he views himself as a reader, as a speller. And I looked at him and I said, Stephen, and he was wrestling with syllable types and spelling rules. And I looked at him and I said, Stephen, I see greatness in you. Hmm. And he kind of sat up, put his pencil down, and he looked at me and he said, Mrs. Barber, you see greatness in me? Aww. He said, you mean like Walt Disney greatness? <laughs> and I said, yes. even more than Walt Disney greatness, Stephen, even more. And so just, you know, speaking the truth into the lives of the students like Brienne did, you know, what did you do that was really hard? Here's the skill sets that you can apply over here. Yes, I see that in you. I believe that you know, with that wise critical feedback that you're going to be able to take this next level of skill or knowledge or disposition. Um, and you know, the, the book, Paul Tuff's book, How Children Succeed, it's a great read. And he talks about that one adult, that one educator in a life of a student that can overcome these either chronic or acute childhood experiences. It just takes one to speak in and say, I'm present, I believe, I see, that you have potential. And so for me, that's the why of this work of, of just seeing in each individual their opportunity to make a difference, care to use your words in that space that they occupy, I believe is so powerful. Seems to come back to the earlier conversation we had, Kristen and, and Paula, you mentioned it as well, this, the feedback, how we communicate with each other. And, you know, so perhaps, part of the work we do, and I think we've talked about this before, and I've talked to my students about it, you know, it's, it's like, imagine one of your students has one of us who typically gives pretty good feedback, right, descriptive, constructive, clear feedback, and then they go on to another class where, I mean, we're all individuals, so we approach feedback in different ways, and they get someone who doesn't give feedback in a way that they need. Well, perhaps some of the work that we do is being that person to provide that feedback, to help, you know, help scaffold individuals' metacognition so eventually they can support themselves and reflect and also to be that sort of, I don't know, a second opinion, if you will, right? Like they get feedback on something and maybe you unpack it with them or a group and, and talk it through to try to give them, not, it's not that you're telling them things that aren't true, but you're saying it in a different way, you know, using appreciative inquiry or something of that nature. Because I can tell you, I mean, I'm sure we all have stories, but I have a student, she's on my mind lately because she just um, defended her proposal. And I remember she's had such a long journey. I remember having her her first semester and she has this great POP and she needed, her writing just wasn't there yet. And I would read her writing and I was like, ah, I just don't understand. I finally said, you know, let's call her Fran. Fran, let's just get on the phone. I, I need to hear you articulate your POP. And she got on the phone and I, and I said to her, you know this, this is clear as day. And like, just like you were saying, Kristen, she was just, I could hear it in her voice that she was so uplifted. So I knew that what we needed to focus on was her writing. Like it wasn't um, not clarity of, of thought with respect to her POP. It was really mechanics of writing, which, you know, and if you don't take that time and ask the question in a different way, or do an informal assessment, which is basically what I did on the fly, right? It was checking in to see what it was about. Um, gosh, that person could have fallen through the cracks. And that's, I don't want that to happen to anybody. Well, and we, we talk a lot about the importance of communicate, communicating when we're creating a sense of belonging in as a learner. And um, 
you know, I think that's the key to even understanding what students are thinking, Carrie. And again, to your point, like I had a student that I was working with with geometry and, you know, typically in textbooks for geometry, they label angles with um, numbers, angle one, angle two. And so when she was asked about the measures of the angles, she kept saying, well, that one's one and that one's two. And so on, on a black and white test, you know, that's only grading right or wrong, she's getting everything wrong. But until we sat down and had that similar dialogue, right? And I realized, well, no wonder, you know, let's fix that right now. And, and that's the end of it. And um, Ken O'Connor describes um, descriptive feedback. Um, and in his description, he said, words open communication, whereas numbers close it down. And mm. it's so true, because when you have those discussions and dialogue with your students, then you both understand each other and you understand where the students are coming from. But when you just grade, you know, back to your standardized tests with mm -hmm. right or wrong, that just closes everything down. I, I almost um, blacked out when you said geometry, I have to say. I had like a, <laughs> <laughs> very bad. Like, don't make me do a proof, Paula, please. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's something I haven't thought of in a long time. Yeah, right. Sorry. So, go ahead, Brian. Um, no, I was just thinking I teach an observation methods course and students go out to various hospitals and schools and they write reports when they come back about what they've seen. And it's a different type of writing than they've ever done. And it's, it's hard for some of them to learn. It's sort of a, a clinical type of writing. Hmm. And because the whole thing is formative, I refuse to give them numbers and it drives them crazy. So I finally, I caved and I said, I'll do check, check, plus, check, minus to give you like a ballpark of where you are. But really your work is to read all the comments and make changes because my grading of this is, am I writing the same comment time after time, after time, after time? And we have um, conferences because sometimes they don't know and understand the comments. And so that's a conversation that we have to have, you know, very similar to the ones that you all were talking about. And then I make them um, or ask them to include the comments on the next draft so that they themselves can see what I've asked them to address and they can see if they've, you know, um, some of them are just stylistic corrections and other things are a little bit more challenging. Um, but in the vein of, of feedback, Carrie, you're really good at this. And actually I adopted it with my classes after having gone through yours at Hopkins. But one of the things that I try to do during the course and especially at the end is help the students to recognize what they've accomplished by virtue of getting through the course. And it doesn't just mean you made it through the finals, you know, because at the end of a semester, you're so just in the weeds, all you wanna do is get to the break. And it's easy to lose that opportunity to reflect on all of the hard work that you've done and the changes that have happened, um, you know, across those 15 weeks. So particularly in the pandemic, but even before, you know, like, let's think about where you are on day one. Do you remember how anxious you were about even leaving this campus and walking into hospitals and schools? I mean, the idea of like navigating the parking lot and talking to the security guard and saying, I have to go to this department was terrifying to the students. And by the end, they've gone to these places, they're comfortable, they're now comparing and contrasting and starting to see themselves as professionals in one of these contexts. So helping them kind of walk through that and really actively reflect on the semester and recognizing the hard, I think that's part of our job. Um, and I don't think that a lot of people do it. I mean, because when, I, when you did it with us, I remember thinking, no one's ever really said that to me before as a student at the doctoral level. <laughs> That's a lot of school to get through. And perhaps it was said and I just forgot. But I really made a point to be intentional about doing that with students and say, look what you just did. This was so hard. 
you know, think about all the, the skills you had to bring to the table. We have to get out of this mindset of you are the score and that the score yes. is your identity and you are the grade. I mean, that just can't be, that's just a piece of the whole thing. I love that, Brianne. And I think, I think the other piece of that, and I think all of you do this well, is not only acknowledging and celebrating what our students have done well, but then like from day one, from jump, letting them know that you, you used to get syllabus anxiety and you bombed a econ course, you know, imagine, you know, let me tell you a story when I almost failed my first econ course and now I'm teaching economic, right? Like, I think that is also a way to remind them that the struggle is real and you can, we can all get through this and I'm going to help you get through this. And I have no doubt that you're going to succeed. Like, you know, I don't know. I just, I think that's really important that you said that, Brianne. I can well, tell you the one that always gets the laugh. Um, anatomy really stressed me out when I took it as a student. And at the time I was on the crew team and my now husband was my coach. So I used to go and sit in his office and cry about anatomy. Be like, it's so hard. I can never do it. So I don't give them that on the first day. I make them wait a little <laughs> while because I feel like that's like really good scoop to have about your teacher. And you got to you gotta earn that a little bit. But they're like, sure. what? First of all, you freaked out about this and now you're teaching it. And like, hold on with the coach. So that's awesome. That's always a good, uh, good conversation. That's awesome. Well, and that's what Bandora talks about with the coping models, with the whole self-efficacy piece. When you see someone that you respect and you, you hope to be like that person in some form or fashion, um, that they struggled with it, that normalizes the process. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And the wise, the wise interventions, not only does it normalize it, but if you're hearing other people's success stories, it creates a sense of belonging within that community that, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a part of this. So there's, I always love when there's multiple benefits that are coming out of that, that one simple act. So. So Paula, we're going to start 2021 in the same way that we went yes! through 2020 because you Drum just roll. created a name for yourself. You're <laughs> close these podcasts. So final thoughts, Paula, as we wrap up the first podcast of 2021, what would you like to leave our listeners and us with? Actually, um, you gave me the final thought idea, Kristen, by your um, beginning poem reading. Um, so wow. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to return to that road less traveled. And I want us to think about something for a minute. So a large part of obviously our part podcast is developing our learner identities as teachers. So we're teachers and learners. And as I thought about those two paths and the conversations that we had today, um, I thought about the fact that if we were truly just teachers, we might have gone with the familiar path, right? So we're going to go down that path where we know everything, it's routine, and we feel solid. But if we think about how many times in this podcast today, we mentioned ourselves as learners, I rarely heard any discussion of us being teachers. Um, so it looks like we're shifting that, right? And definitely as learners, we're choosing that untraveled path. And certainly by doing that, it's because we had somebody invest in us and we had models along the way that we hope to be for our students. And they taught us to have heart. We talked about having a heart. We've talked about having that beginner's mindset where you're curious. So you go down that, that untraveled path. We talked about being a lifelong learner and a learner would want to go on the untrampled path. And we certainly weren't worried about an assessment at the end. And, you know, we were just hoping we were going to make it through. Um, but even more importantly than us taking that path, I think is being models 
for our students to take that path as well. So drop the mic, ladies. Thank you, Paula. That's a great way to close. We look forward to our next podcast with you. Take care, everyone. Be well.